0: This is the E-Learning Alchemist podcast. Welcome to the E-Learning Alchemist podcast. I am your host, Clint Clarkson. And in this episode, we're going to talk about one of today's hottest buzzwords, disruption. Specifically, We're going to ask the question, what will be the next big thing to disrupt learning and development? Spoiler alert, I don't know the answer, but we'll get to that. Preparing for this podcast wasn't particularly easy because it would be easy to spend the next 20 minutes or so only talking about what disruption is, why it's important, how to be ready for it, and related topics. In fact, any one of those topics could last the next 20 minutes or longer, but we need to get to L&D so I'm going to try to keep this intro relatively short and then start splicing in learning and development. To be honest, I don't love the words disrupt and disruption because we've buzzwordified them. Not L&D, but the whole world. Disruption is so hot right now. The thing about buzzwords is they're sexy, and that's why we end up using them. And because they're sexy, they get used in all kinds of contexts, often the wrong ones. We use buzzwords in place of better, more appropriate words, and we do this a lot with disruption. So what really is disruption anyways? A universally agreed to definition of disruption is difficult to nail down because we're using it to describe something much larger than an interruption, which is part of the literal definition of the word. If I barged into your wedding with super soakers and started blasting your guests, that would be disruptive, and I'd probably get my ass kicked, but that's not what we're talking about here. Instead, what we're actually talking about is innovation, and the root word innovate has a great definition, which is to make changes in something established, especially by introducing new methods, ideas, or products. Innovation is a requirement for all businesses and professionals in all industries, but not all innovation is disruptive. Fast food restaurants introduced salads a number of years ago in an attempt to board the health food bandwagon. This was innovative for fast food restaurants, but it didn't exactly disrupt salads as we know them. In this regard, we might say that there is innovation, and then there is disruptive innovation. Okay, so let's try and define disruptive innovation. As a confession here, I'm going to go against the research and literature on this one. The definition of disruptive innovation, as described by Harvard Business School professor Clayton Christensen, who is the expert on this topic, describes disruptive innovation quite a bit differently than I will here. I'll drop a link to a two-minute explainer video on Christensen's definition of disruptive innovation in the description if you're interested. But to be clear, I am not challenging Christensen's research or expertise. He just happened to pick the best words to describe what we're talking about now. Christensen, on the other hand, was specifically talking about the process small businesses use to disrupt incumbent businesses or industries. So we're not talking about the same thing, but we are using the same words. Okay, so back to the million-dollar question. In our context, what is disruptive innovation? The easiest way to answer this question is probably to look at a few examples. Apple disrupted the MP3 player and cell phone industries By creating beautiful, easy-to-use products which created an entirely new industry in the form of smartphone apps. Uber disrupted the cab industry with a ride-sharing model that, above all else, is incredibly customer-centric. Amazon disrupted online purchases with a slew of small and large innovations such as free shipping, affiliate sellers, online groceries, and so much more. And Google disrupted the entire internet by simply making our everyday needs like GPS directions, word processing and spreadsheets, photo storage, and so much more, Easy to use and free. We know that these industry leaders are disruptive because they've impacted our lives. Even if you don't own an iPod or an iPhone, you almost certainly own a touch display smartphone filled with apps that make your life easier and more fun, or in the case of email, more stressful. So, disruptive innovation is any innovation that fundamentally changes the landscape of an industry, business, or profession. It forces everyone to either step up their game, change games if they can't compete, or be left for dead. Before we get into what will disrupt L&D next, it's worth asking the question, has L&D really ever been disrupted in the modern era? Despite all the conference session titles and descriptions, there has been very little disruption in the L&D industry over the past 20 years and probably much longer than that. We have seen a lot of innovation, but not of the disruptive variety. The last real disruption was probably the launch of asynchronous computer-based training, CBT, and even that might be a stretch to call it disruption. With the advent of CBT, we really didn't do anything we weren't doing before with other self-directed learning strategies. It just became digital, which is probably part of the problem. The internet and broadband technologies have brought us a smorgasbord of new tools utilized by learning professionals, but have they really been disruptive? Affordable video has made video more accessible, but video is still only appropriate for certain content, and we haven't started using it in some new miraculous way. Sorry, interactive video guys, it's not that special. Screen recording has made it easier to train software online, which is fantastic, but it's hardly changed how we approach software training. Mobile technology, for all its buzz, also hasn't exactly reached the lofty promises touted by some vendors. And rapid authoring tools, which have certainly made e learning development easier and created a career that is far more accessible, haven't fundamentally changed how we develop or deliver e learning. So, with all of this, why are we so obsessed with disruption? Part of the obsession is driven by observable failures. In some cases, Disruptions have sent entire businesses into oblivion, like what digital photography did to Kodak and Polaroid, or what online and bargain shopping did to Sears. Nokia rode the cell phone way for a number of years. The Nokia brick is a classic internet meme, yet they were swallowed up by the smartphone revolution ushered in by Apple. Ironically, Nokia had historically been an incredibly adaptable company. They were founded as a pulp mill and were known for their rubber and cables businesses before the 1990s when they shifted their focus to telecommunications. So it's totally fair to be obsessed with disruption. Some things are so disruptive, they annihilate one's incredibly successful businesses. Watching for disruption and reacting to it effectively could be the difference between life and death for industries and businesses, and even professionals, metaphorically speaking. L&D needs to be awake when it comes to anything that could disrupt our industry. But to this point, we haven't gone through a lot of disruption. We're perpetually innovating and getting better incrementally. But disruption, at least as I would define it, hasn't really happened. An important note about disruption is what drives it. Technology is often a driver of disruption. Digital disruption has even become a term in its own right. And given recent innovations, it's easy to think of disruptive innovation as a purely technical reference. Digital photography, mobile devices, that internet thing. They are all driving disruption in different industries and in the way we live. But while technology is often a driver, it's not often the catalyst. The subscription model, used by organizations like Netflix and Spotify, or from our own industry, Adobe and Articulate, has been enabled by technology, but the catalyst is the business model. The free model, where tools you want and use every day are given to you for free, which is used by companies like Facebook or Google, is also enabled by technology. But it's the business model that creates the disruption. If you're wondering what types of tools have taken on this free model in learning and development, see Tracy Parrish's list of free e-learning tools for oodles of examples. I'll put a link in the description. The notion that the tech won't be the catalyst is important for L&D. We're gazing into the potential of worlds created in virtual reality, unsure of how the technology will evolve and what its ultimate applications will be. I've been critical of VR to this point because it's being used in so many inappropriate ways and it's still too costly for most businesses. It's also clunky, and while it's getting better, virtual worlds are still too difficult to interact with, even if they are visually stunning. That doesn't mean that VR won't disrupt our industry, but a new model for its use needs to emerge or it will only be applicable to certain situations. Augmented reality, or AR, on the other hand, has enormous potential for L&D, particularly in the area of performance support. Imagine an augmented, step-by-step guide for how to repair a piece of machinery. In any situation where employees interact with the physical world, AR has potential. It could effectively eliminate entire training programs as the learning would become embedded in the work. Imagine what that would do for error reduction. What if AR could not only provide the steps but was smart enough to identify and point out errors. In this regard, I don't think L&D is going to be the industry that leads the AR revolution. Instead, we're more likely to be disrupted by the continuous improvement professions as their understanding of process design is often superior to our own. Oh, and if you think AR is in the category of flying cars and isn't going to happen anytime soon, Huawei recently announced that they expect their AR glasses to be commercialized within one to two years. Facebook and Apple are reportedly working on similar products. Don't believe the failure of Google Glass was the failure of AR. On that note, let's talk about failure. Why does disruption lead to failure? If an innovation occurs and it doesn't lead to massive change and failure, it isn't disruption. Failure is a necessary element in this definition of disruption. When something is truly disruptive, organizations and individuals will react differently. If everyone does the same thing, it means we know what the innovation is and how to apply it, which means it's not disruptive. This is part of why I don't believe the l industry has been disrupted to date. While there are certainly companies and individuals who have failed in this industry, very few, dare I say none, have been put out of business by disruption. For every company that laments the rise of rapid authoring tools, there is another incumbent that has continued to grow and find success upon storyline's arrival. Okay, so failure is part of what disruption is, but still, how do we know who will win and who will lose? Frankly, it's a silly question. We can't predict disruption. Well, I guess that's not entirely true, but our predictions are often just our best guesses, and people way smarter, more educated, and more connected than me are getting it wrong all the time. Individuals have allegedly said the automobile is only a novelty, a fad. A rocket will never be able to leave the Earth's atmosphere. Nuclear-powered vacuum cleaners will probably be a reality in 10 years, and there's no reason anyone would want a computer in their home. How's that for missing the mark? Whether predicting what will or won't happen, we get it wrong all the time. This, of course, doesn't mean we can't look at historical disruptions individually or in meta analysis and create ideas around why companies and individuals fail in the face of disruption. In a 2015 HBR article, the authors noted a troubling concern in that too many people who speak of disruption have not read a serious book or article on the subject. In this context, that might include any book on innovation as well. I highly recommend. Clayton Christensen's seminal book, The Innovator's Dilemma When New Technologies Cause Great Firms to Fail, and Larry Keeley's 10 Types of Innovation, The Discipline of Building Breakthroughs. Both of these books are fantastic reads, and I'll put links to summaries of each book in the description if you'd like a quick introduction. So, understanding disruption might be part of the challenge, but there's definitely more to it. In the context of learning and development, our focus on our customers might be part of the problem. Many organizations fail to evolve with disruptive innovations because it's not what their customers are telling them they want. As Henry Ford famously quipped, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. In L&D's case, the problem is twofold. First, we sometimes forget that our customers are the businesses we serve, not our learners. This changes in certain contexts. Sometimes your learners are paying for a course. But speaking specifically of workplace learning, we often focus on the learners instead of the business. What the learners want and what the business wants are not always the same thing. Second there's no guarantee that the learners or the business have any idea what they need. We could ask for a one-hour session on customer service or an e-learning course on communication skills, and then we scurry away to build them. Even if we take the time to complete a training needs analysis, we're typically doing it to justify the training we're about to build. If another industry figures out how to develop employee skills and knowledge while actually improving employee performance, L&D will quickly be out in the cold. There are already numerous continuous improvement programs such as lean manufacturing, Six Sigma, the Toyota Way, and programs like the Four Disciplines of Execution, 40X for short, that have proven methodologies for driving improvements and behavior change. Is LD spending enough time investigating these approaches for opportunities? There are certainly practitioners out there doing this, and the International Society for Performance Improvement, ISIPI, is certainly thinking about it. It just doesn't seem like the two practices are merging as effectively as they could. To that end, both LD and Continuous Improvement are massive vocations and becoming highly skilled in either is challenging enough, let alone both. A question that arose on LinkedIn was, is our next disruption for LD coming from marketing? In preparing for this podcast, I reached out to Mike Taylor and Bianca Bauman to ask their opinions and perspectives on how marketing tactics might disrupt l Mike and Bianca are outstanding learning professionals, both highly skilled and knowledgeable, and they're both extremely likable people. I'll leave their Twitter, LinkedIn, and website information in the description if you'd like to reach out and connect with them. There isn't enough time now to get into everything we discussed, mostly because it was such a good discussion, and I imagine we could have talked about it all day. So let's chomp on a few big ideas, starting with a reflection question. If marketing professionals were suddenly in charge of learning and development, how would they do it differently? Press pause and think about that question. No, seriously, press pause. You don't need to make notes, but think about it critically. If marketing were in charge, would L&D look anything like it does today? the answer is no way. Why? Because marketing understands attention. They know that the currency of sales is getting people's attention, and they would know that learning and development is about selling ideas. Gagné knew it too when he recorded the nine events of instruction. Event number one, gain the learner's attention. Marketers, though, do this at a level unparalleled. For years, they've used psychology to burn brands, ideas, wants, needs, and desires into our minds, and boy, have they been successful. So why hasn't L&D been nearly as successful when we have access to all the same research as marketing? Bianca said it this way. When I hear psychology, that's a little bit more palatable than brain science. In L&D, people talk about neuroscience, and you go to conferences and there's sessions on it, and keynotes about it, and there's a lot of instructional designers now that are talking about it, but it hasn't really blended as much yet as how psychology has blended with marketing. Now, the off the cuff defense response is that marketing has massive budgets. Sure, but they earned those budgets through continuous, measurable results. If LD produced similar results, we'd get similar budgets. Mike went on to talk about something L&D could absolutely steal from marketing, which is the words they use and how they write. He said, words are super important. You give a topic to an LD person and a marketer to write, I can almost guarantee you the words they choose are going to be very different. The marketer is going to be super concise, super efficient. And draw on emotions. Why is that? Our goals are the same. L&D and marketing are trying to capture people's attention and convince them to take action. Our worlds are certainly different. We're delivering information in different ways and through different mediums. But if a marketing firm took over our jobs, which parts would they do better? We also discussed the reality that everyone has experience with L&D and/or formal education, and because we've all experienced it, we tend to think we know something about it. We've all experienced marketing as well, but not in the same way, not as closely. Marketing feels like something off in the distance that we can see but not touch. We also know how effective marketing is. We know that there are laws about what they can and cannot do because they can be effective to the point that it's immoral. So in this way, marketers seem to be more trusted. I know that's sort of contradictory, but really, they get results. And their craft seems more difficult. So they're trusted because they get results. As our conversation progressed, we talked about all kinds of marketing tactics that L&D could make better use of. Mike brought up how marketing uses data and their obsession with data for measuring results. L&D talks a lot about measurement, but we aren't nearly as committed to it as marketing. Marketers use data well before they deliver products to help ensure their success. And they follow up collecting more data after they've marketed to determine whether or not it was successful. And if they weren't successful, they figure out new ways to attack the problem. Bianca discussed how direction and visual movement are used intentionally to draw in the audience and get them to focus on specific elements. This is more than just graphics or text fading in like we use in PowerPoints and e-learning, but the deliberate staging of images, videos, graphics, and text to subtly, subconsciously, lead the viewer's eye. And we discussed the significance of seeing a commercial more than once, how it develops awareness and brand identity. Big corporations, and with the explosion of social media, many individuals now understand the power of a brand and what it means. But too few L&D professionals or more specifically, departments, are managing their brands within organizations. Mike said this, you have a brand whether you realize it or not. If you're not managing it, it's probably not very good. What's L&D's brand in general? They make those courses that nobody wants to go to? That's not very good. The last thing to mention before we close off this podcast was a commercial that Mike brought up during our discussion. It's a Subaru commercial titled They Lived, and it sums up beautifully what marketers do better than LD storytelling in a way that captures our emotions the clip is only 32 seconds long and contains just 12 words but the message is powerful and evocative it reminded me of a video produced by jb hunt a us-based trucking company the video is called every driver has a story it's a bit longer at 5 minutes and 39 seconds but if you've ever wondered what it's like to be a long-haul truck driver or even if you haven't it is a powerful video jb hunt is not the size of a company like subaru and they don't have the same resources, but they were still able to produce something really special. And maybe that's how we get more budget for these types of projects, by making them multi-purpose. This video is an incredible marketing tool, as well as an incredible training tool, and probably an awesome recruiting tool. When new employees join JB Hunt, I can just imagine them watching this video to help explain what it's like to be a truck driver and the challenges they face, not just in the job, but with their personal lives too. It communicates an important message to all employees about the expectations of how their drivers are treated. All this talk about marketing probably lands more in the realm of innovation than disruptive innovation. But hey, we need some innovation, not new tech, not new buzzwords, but some legitimate innovation, new ways of doing things. And on that note, sometimes disruption is driven by a lot of small changes all happening at once that collectively create massive change. Before we dive into the recap, this discussion with Mike and Bianca was so powerful and thought-provoking. I've asked them to participate in a future podcast so we can dive into this topic more deeply. Watch out for that. All right, folks, let's wrap this up. Here is a rapid fire recap for your pleasure. One, the question, what will disrupt l next is silly. We don't know, we can't know, we can only guess. Some will be right, others will be wrong, and new technologies will likely blow up everything we think we know already. Two, augmented reality has outstanding potential to disrupt l d by becoming the most powerful performance support tool we've ever seen, far more powerful than our printable and mobile job aids. Of course, this assumes that AR, or another technology, doesn't evolve in a dramatically new way, and applications for their use, as the tech becomes more accessible, doesn't interrupt our well-laid plans. And they almost certainly will. 3. Continuous improvement methodologies are also ripe for the picking of new ideas for learning and development. I think of 4DX's ability to drive employee and organizational performance through a focus on executing and tracking employee behaviors. This is a powerful tool L&D needs to be more familiar with. Four, finally, marketing. What if we thought like marketers and approached training, at least some of it, like marketers? How would that change what we produce? How would our learners react? And what if we managed our brands individually and as departments like major corporations manage theirs? We know that learners don't want to go to corporate training, and that's a terrible brand for us to have. What do you think? Is there something else you believe will disrupt L&D? Has L&D been disrupted already? will disruption come from a place I haven't mentioned yet? Looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Put them in the comment section or email me at podcast at elearningalchemy.com. That's all for today, folks. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll listen again next week when we discuss whether or not training should be fun. I think you guys probably already know my answer to that. Take care. Until then.